So funny story, um, I woke up at 5 a.m. to put the finishing touches on my sermon, and my five-year-old MacBook decided today was the day it was going to lose my entire Word document. So not so funny story anymore. Um, so I wrote this uh, within the past two hours. So I apologize if I stumble. Um, I'm going to just throw it out there in advance that if none of this makes sense, I am so sorry. It made sense at like 6 o'clock this morning when I was writing it. So just bear with me uh, and let's pray. Mother God, hold us in your loving arms this morning. Give us the comfort and peace and grace that we so deeply long for. May you be big and I be little. That's all I ask. Amen. In Rachel Held Evans' most recent and sadly final book, Inspired, she introduces the concept and importance of origin stories. I was reminded last week at the showing of Karen Nilsson's film Steadfast just how central these stories are to our community of faith and our collective humanity. These stories tell us who we are. They are the foundations of our traditions and our rituals, and they inform our belief about how God works in the world. And lastly, they shape our ideas about what kind of legacy we'd like to leave. In the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, we learn that God created all of creation, including human beings, as tov, good, whole, and in harmony, reflections of God's own community. At the beginning, it was very clear who was God and who was not. There was no confusion about who was the creator and who was the creation. There was no misunderstanding about who was in power and who was not. But as you all know, this shalom, this perfect peace, did not last very long because human beings were tempted by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a sort of dividing line between God and not God in the world. These humans believed the lies that they were told, namely, that if they ate the fruit, they could become like God. They too could be all-powerful and all-knowing. And who wouldn't be lured in by such a promise? When we as a community of faith tell this origin story, we emphasize that humanity's desire to be like God is ultimately the cause of their fracture and separation from God himself. We see in the rest of the Old Testament and much of the New how much brokenness and chaos this desire and subsequent estrangement causes. People are enslaved and set free. Dynasties are born and snuffed out. Tribes are lost and never found. Temples are built, destroyed, built again, and destroyed again. So as we read today's passage from Acts and as we work through it, Let's have this origin story in the back of our minds, both as a reminder of our created goodness 
and as a warning if we are tempted to forget who we are and who we are not. As Pastor Ellie mentioned last week, these stories that we are reading from Acts are maybe stories that you skipped over in your Sunday school lessons. I know that I did. Uh, And these stories from Acts, even though they are unfamiliar, tell a new kind of origin story that is really important to who we are as the church. These stories after Pentecost uh, tell us the birth story of the church and all of the complications that come with it. This origin story of Acts reveals how a distinctly Jewish group of Jesus followers evolved into a multicultural, multiracial, and multi-ethnic community. It was not an easy road, with lots of squabbles over who was in and who was out, disagreements over doctrine, and persecution from both inside and outside forces, including one of our main characters today. Saul, in his own words, had been persecuting the early followers of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he writes, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. A devout Jew, Saul believed that Jesus' ministry had posed a threat to Jewish orthodoxy and that his claim to be the Son of God was simply blasphemy. And so in Acts chapter 9, when Saul comes face to face with a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, it is absolutely shocking that his heart is changed and he begins to preach the gospel. The beginning of Acts 13 tells us that shortly after his conversion, Saul is gathered with the other prophets and teachers and apostles in Antioch, north of Jerusalem. Could really use that map right about now. (laughs) Just kidding. The Holy Spirit moves among them and calls for Saul and Barnabas to be set apart for a special mission. This special mission is just one of many for Paul, who will complete four missionary journeys in his lifetime all of them bringing the gospel further north and west. Paul, as he comes to be called, and Barnabas, begin this special mission by traveling into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, into a region called Galatia. Just prior to today's passage, Paul and Barnabas had been teaching in Iconium, where their message faced great opposition. In fact, the reason that Paul and Barnabas flee or go into Lystra and Derby is because they were fleeing threats against their life. In Lystra, we read that Paul and Barnabas encounter a man crippled from birth, a man who had never walked and could not use his feet. Paul commands the man to get up and walk, and miraculously he is healed and able to move freely for the first time in his life. When the gathered crowd sees that the man is fully healed and no longer disabled in any way, they say, the gods have come down to us in human form. Is it really that strange that people who had witnessed a miracle make a logical leap to assume the person who just performed with such power is not, in fact, a human, but a god? 
That doesn't seem so strange to me. I think our categories of human and divine are temporary, temporarily blurred in this moment, and that's what makes things so confusing. The crowds call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes and try to offer a sacrifice in their honor at the temple just outside the city gates. Now, I think human beings are a bit of a paradox, and I'll explain just a little bit why I think so. You see, I think we love our categories of knowing who's who and what's what, but we also love to imagine that we can transcend these categories. While it might seem like we're pretty clear on the boundary between the eternal and the finite, Genesis chapter 3 reminds us that we've been fooled before. In our culture, we love heroes. We love epic narratives of women and men gaining extraordinary strength. We see every Marvel movie that hits the big screen. We end up worshiping our own ideas of power and knowledge. When I entered college, I set out to be as unemployable as possible. At least that's what my parents believed. Uh, I double majored in history and art history. And while those might look absolutely terrible on a resume, they did give me a framework for analyzing and understanding humanity and the stories that we tell about ourselves. One of my favorite paintings that I've ever studied is a mural painted on the dome of the United States Capitol building. After the Civil War, the Capitol underwent significant reconstruction. An Italian painter, Constantino Brumidi, spent 11 months sketching and painting figures that would eventually measure 15 feet tall. The masterpiece's title is called The Apotheosis of Washington and shows George Washington enthroned, surrounded by allegorical figures such as commerce, agriculture, war, and science. Our first president, robed in royal purple, is flanked by victory and liberty with a rainbow arched at his feet. From the floor of the Capitol's rotunda, Washington and his pantheon seem to look down from heaven itself, their bodies supported by swirling clouds and their figures lit by pure, bright light. Apotheosis literally means to become divine. And it is so common a theme in artwork around the world that it has its own genre. While this mural and other artwork like it in its genre are not systematic theology, it does reveal to us what we value, what virtues we extol, what accomplishments are worthy of notice and celebration, and what our ideas of power and success might look like. I think this painting in particular can tell you a lot about America's character. A quick tangent into some delicious irony. Human beings love to imagine ourselves as gods, but the god that we follow did the exact opposite of apotheosis. Jesus was not born a human and raised to divine status at his death and resurrection. Rather, he was an eternal presence, there at the beginning of time, who gladly and humbly descended into the world that he had created so that we might walk and talk and live with him. The exact opposite of being enthroned in the clouds, surrounded by fellow deities and powerful beings, Jesus instead came to sit and eat 
with broken people, with poor people, with disenfranchised people. Jesus did not look down from heaven, but came down to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. We use the word incarnation to describe this, but I'll simply call it good news. So back to Paul and Barnabas and their mission to bring this good news to all people. When they try to clear up the question of their mistaken identity, they say, friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. The author of Acts tells us that despite this clarification on their part, the crowd still does not understand. So this story of Paul and Barnabas shows that the presence and work of the Holy Spirit isn't always welcome or understood. Some people might respond to the expanding work of the Spirit with hostility, like those who threatened Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, because new revelation and change upsets the status quo. The work of the Holy Spirit in our time and our community might cause similar discomfort as well, especially if we are called to welcome the lost and left out and vulnerable. At the other extreme, the movement of the Spirit can spark idol worship and attempts at apotheosis, like in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas are called gods because of their power to perform miracles. And it is indeed true that the Holy Spirit empowers us for these good works to transform the world. But we should remember that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit does not transform us into divine beings ourselves. So here's where I think Paul's mission in Asia Minor can help us as we begin a new transition, a new journey, a new origin story of our own. Paul's ministry shows us what it means to decenter ourselves as we pursue God's kingdom here on earth. These stories and acts of how crowds responded to Paul and Barnabas, both in protest and in praise, can remind us who we are and exactly who we are not. In this first chapter of his epistle to the Galatians, a letter written to the people of Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe, after his departure from them, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all of the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In this passage, Paul is crystal clear about who he is and who he is not. Paul understands that his work, including the miracles, the teaching, the death threats, the mistaken sacrifices, none of it centers on him. None of the success or failure or conversions or riots, none of it are about him. Paul knows that his ministry isn't built on his personality or his knowledge of scripture, 
or his family connections, but on the Holy Spirit, which lives inside all believers. Decentering ourselves, though, is tough work. Decentering ourselves requires an honest look at our motives and our egos, all of the ways that we like to play God in our lives, and imagine that apotheosis becoming divine is actually possible. Decentering ourselves asks us to acknowledge how we've centered our own desires, our own cultural lenses, our own biases, or the approval of other humans. Putting the Holy Spirit, though, at the center of our mission means that we don't do the work of the gospel as a grasp for power. Centering the Holy Spirit means that the work of justice in our world is not a self-improvement project or a way to make ourselves feel charitable, but a vital part of God's plan for the healing and reconciliation of all of creation. Centering the Holy Spirit means that we understand that we are witnesses to and participants in God's kingdom, but we always point to something and someone greater. Our covenant ancestors, those Christians who left the state church and decided to read the Bible for themselves, first called themselves mission friends as a reflection of their dedication to this Holy Spirit-driven mission. They didn't call themselves Swedish friends to honor their singular collective heritage. They didn't call themselves holiness friends because they considered themselves more righteous nor did they call themselves doctrine friends out of a sense of ideological purity. Mission friends was their chosen name because their mission was what united them in one hope and one purpose. Our mission here at First Covenant Church unites us now and always. Despite our differing backgrounds, our heritages, our socioeconomic statuses, and more. So as we enter into this new season of ministry here in our community, let's make a conscious decision, all of us, to keep the Holy Spirit at the center of our lives and our work. In our worship and our fellowship, let's continue to listen for the ways the Spirit is speaking to us and directing our path. Even if that means going to places and people where we might face opposition and protest. In our journey, let us not forget exactly who we are, the beloved creation of God, even if the world tries to confuse us for someone else. Let's keep our hearts and our dreams big and our egos little. In the days and weeks and months to come, let's get to work my mission friends. Amen.